another Dishcast. This week, someone I've been trying to get on the show for a while, and I'm absolutely thrilled she's here. Uh, and actually, we're doing this for the first time, actually, in my own place, one-on-one, -on -one, in person, in Provincetown, which is, I think, a better way of doing these things. You actually get to be with someone and see their face and body language, and you, you have a different kind of conversation. But anyway, Jill Abramson is a journalist and academic and author of five books. She's best known as the first woman to become executive editor at the New York Times from 2011 to 2014. And she's currently a professor in the English department at Harvard. Jill, lovely to meet you. Lovely to show you, meet you, see you. <laughs> <laughs> um, that thing always gets me, by the way. Do you get, get the nice to see you, meet you thing screwed up? Yes, and it's particularly horrible when you've forgotten the name of whoever you're you're talking to. <laughs> can happen to my worst moment when I was actually brought in by Liz Cheney then, whom I knew a long time ago because she was uh, she was just part of my generation at, 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 at in D.C. And she said of a meeting, she wanted me to come in and talk to Condi Rice in the second term of. Bush. So I show up, I walk in and she says, so nice, nice. Uh, and, I, and I say immediately, so nice to meet you, Madam Secretary. And then she says, well, you know, we've actually met before. Oh, <laughs> just, God. Like, How did I forget that I'd met Condi Rice, for God's sake? At least you didn't say to her, nice to meet you, Mr. Mayor. Remember that one with oh, Ray? Yes, with his cabinet member? <laughs> With yeah. Samuel Pierce, who yeah. was the secretary of HUD, and he confused him because he's black with the mayor of Washington. <laughs> yes, I, I, I could have gone. I could have been worse. Mm -hmm. It could, it could actually have been worse. Have you? I, that I mean, isn't that the punchline to life? It could always have been worse. I don't know though because I have had some really bad faux pas in my past. Um, I almost don't want to confess this one because it's it's <laughs> awful, but it's kind of riveting that I did this. I was, for reasons that are completely unnecessary to elaborate now, but I was in the back of a car in Hyannisport with the Kennedys. Oh, um, now that has faux pas written all over. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, this is so bad, Jill. I'm almost embarrassed to even repeat it, but I'm in the backseat of a car and I'm with Max, who is my friend, still is my friend, and... Bobby was in the the front, the dr driving, and Ethel was Ethel was in the other seat, and they were curious about me. I was friends with Max, and I was not a lefty, so they wanted to ask me all these questions: Who did I love in British politics? And I told them I loved Thatcher. They were actually horrified, and uh, and then this happened. They said, "And who do you really not like in British politics?" And this was way back when. I said, "You know, Shirley Williams. She was the education minister that abolished the." school that I went to. And I really had a resentment for it ever since. You know, if I had one bullet, I, uh, oh no. Uh, <laughs> and a grassy knoll to boot. <laughs> and I, there was a split second. I'm like, do I open the car door? I just jump out. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, those things happen. But Jill, <laughs> tell us <laughs> before we blather on some more. Um, where did you grow up? I am the satire of a liberal. Huh. No, seriously, I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. 
every single relative, even in the older generations, lived on the number 10 bus line, which is Central Park West, except for one of my grandmothers lived on Central Park South. We were Manhattan through and through. Uh, and what did your parents do? My father had, was an importer of Irish linen, which he sold to uh, the designers in New York. So the rag trade. He kind was a, of. yes, absolutely. Schmada guy. And uh, my mother didn't work, but was one of the longest serving volunteers in a remedial reading program in the city. And she did that for nearly 30 years, but she didn't work. So were you always interested in being a writer or a reporter? How did that, how did that come in your... Well, part of being, you know, a satire of a liberal is my parents had <laughs> two home delivery subscriptions to the New York Times. Why? Two. Because they couldn't share it at the same because time? my father took his to work. Ah, I see. And my mother was a puzzler. And for some reason, she didn't like people to touch her paper. Don't ask me. A puzzler? Crossword she puzzle. did so, And she, she was scared someone might. I don't know. She just liked her paper to be just so. And she didn't tear the puzzle out. She did it. That was one of the things that newspapers used to do. We'll, we'll get onto this a bit. But we'll, we'll, we'll go back to your, your how you went into it. Was that it was always a package that was bound together. So people would buy it just for the sports. Uh, some people, and people may slip into politics. There was the crossword puzzle fans. There were there were there were the comic strips which people. Well, the Times has never I had a true. comic. Although the review section sometimes has cartoons. Yeah, but that but people didn't, we got people who weren't necessarily that interested in the news by other means and then were able to sort of maybe get something about the news or politics of the world into them at the same time. I mean, I, in Britain, the Daily Telegraph was basically bought by Middle England to read the cricket. But that made it hugely influential because there, there was a lot of people there and you could get to them anyway. Tell me about how you decided to be a, a writer or a journalist. Um, I was inspired. This is so corny, but, you know, we were <coughs> chatting earlier, Andrew, about the January 6th hearings. And my freshman year of college was the Watergate hearings. And I found them riveting and had a transistor radio. So I, li I didn't watch them, but I listened to them. And I would run to Harvard Square and buy three-day-old copies of the Washington Post for like $4 to read Woodward and Bernstein. And that inspired me. Yeah. It would. I mean, that I mean, that was really the most glamorous moment. I mean, a whole generation went into journalism as you did for that, right? I mean, that's the, the absolutely. I had not like I hadn't been on my <laughs> high school paper or anything like that. In some ways, I sort of think the glamour that Watergate gave journalists was bad, right? Journalists because Woodward and Bernstein became these stars, and and 
sort of before that, and certainly the tradition I came from, journalists were the lowest of the low. No one, no one noticed the bylines. Uh, and your job was to go and to ask people difficult questions and horribly rude behavior. And your basic, and, and a lot of the good stuff would come from people from their actual communities, working class communities, you know, Irish reporters uh, covering the cops or, you know, those kind of things that happened. And, and once it got kind of stardom and elitism, it attracted a different kind of writer, a different kind of person. Right. Although Carl Bernstein was not an that's, elitist. That's, you're right. Yeah. Uh, but you're absolutely right about what it became. And I've known you long enough that you probably remember my days at the Wall Street Journal when I was writing about lobbyists. That was my the influence peddling. And when I started writing about it, I thought, wow, you know, this is sort of an unknown world. It's been covered by many journalists. And I felt like I was revealing surprising and somewhat shocking things. And then, you know, I always maintained an interest in the world of Washington lobbyists because they're kind of a permanent government. But after maybe nine years, I kind of felt like all the stories I did a little bit had the same punchline and that readers had probably gone from being shocked by what I wrote earlier to being kind of surprised, surprised, right. you know, a little bit cynical. They were better informed. And then I feel a little bit that investigative reporting morphed into something where there is no good in the world, that sort of everything in some ways became scandalous. And in a way, I think that has led somewhat to what we call doom scrolling now, that uh, the version of the world that journalism brings to people every day is so dark and ne negative and pessimistic that people don't want to read it or absorb it as much as in the old days. I right. Think. And that's, I mean, that is part of our collapse of faith in these institutions is that journalists are constantly showing you you shouldn't have any faith in these institutions without ever, yeah. ever really I mean, thinking about, about the consequences right. of that. Because that wasn't our job. No, or or the people doing good work who are never good stories. I mean, you when, you when you're outside Washington and you hear what people say about it and the people in it and some of the people you've written about in terms of lobbying, it is hideous. But in reality, there's still a huge number of people getting up, going to work, actually right. decent public servants who really are trying to do their best and 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 people trying to make the world a better place. I mean, and yeah. it's obviously it's a mix. It is. And I don't know if you read this book, but I thought Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Element, mm -hmm. really got at that. I mean, he was writing about bureaucrats mostly in Washington, but ones that had tremendous expertise over the decades and were advanced in science and 
the climate and weather and all of that. And all of these people were leaving during the Trump years. And I thought, you know, that that book was just really good because it focused on these people that mattered and were doing good. That's classic Michael coming at something and seeing it. Yeah. But Michael's also an incredibly positive person. His Mm -hmm. stories are all about little guys kind of making a positive difference in the world, which is why I think people like to read it. But it, it sort of has not, it's become sophisticated not to believe any of that stuff. You know, it's, I mean, the other thing I was thinking of is all the people I knew in the State Department. If you think of the State Department and what it, the body of knowledge that is, you can have an expert on anything. You'll have someone who's studied forever. Before, right. And, and you have this amazing apparatus at your service. And Trump never talked to a single one of them. No. And the the tragedy is that a lot of those people left because they just couldn't fathom working for... I knew the demoralization of so many of these people in that period was just intense. Um, uh so you started off at the journal. Now the the uh, reporting on mon- dark money or this is gritty, unglamorous actually work. You were <laughs> yeah. a young woman making your way into journalism, and you know you're not you're not going to work for the style section. You do this this very hard boiled, um, intricate, difficult. Presumably, a lot of your skills are researching how do you i mean how do you track money this way you must have developed skills that other journalists have not well a vivid memory i have when al hunt who was the longtime washington bureau chief of the wall street journal told me i would be an investigative reporter covering money and politics uh the reporter who had that job before me said you must learn DBase, which was a data, it would be an app now, but it was a very complicated uh, system of collecting data. And the journal paid, I think back then it was like $200 for me to take a course in DBase at the very beginning of having this be. And I stayed for the morning session and there's a lunch break. And I just walked across the key bridge and never came back. <laughs> so, so I never really covered money and politics in a sophisticated data focused okay. way. But it's the same investigative reporting is the same as any kind of reporting. It's like persuading people to talk to you who are probably not eager to all the time. And certainly now often don't want to talk to reporters. So how do you tell, tell us the secret? The secret is just to be super prepared before you call any source of read as much as you can about what they do or the subject that's their expertise because a, reporting is really in some ways information arbitrage right. where you're sort of trading 
things you know with the sources you're interviewing. And that seemed to work for me. And I imagine also a source that gets questions that show a grasp of the material is like to be more impressed by that reporter than if they call up with clueless questions. Yeah, and easily be... it's just good practice because you're going to understand what the person you're interviewing is talking about if you've done your homework. Let me pose you the question I've always sort of have in the back of my mind when I read stories like this. You and Jane Mayer have done amazing work on all this stuff. And, and I'm not denying its importance or its value. But here's the thing. Part of me thinks, aren't they just all wasting their money? Does this, does this really make a huge difference um, in terms of, isn't this just a great scam by lobbyists to get this? To, 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 yeah. By, by conning people into thinking they can do things they can't really do. Well, but what you, what you learn early on about the world of lobbying is that all the money is made by preventing things from happening, mm. not making them happen. Mm. Like no action on legislation is often the best friend of the biggest businesses and corporations. And that means there's a retainer probably for years because the same bills are often introduced session after session. And you can fib about it. I mean, you can you can tell, oh, I worked hard to like prevent this happening. It didn't happen. It wasn't going to happen anyway, but you get the check. Right? That's, a little bit. What about like the money behind political campaigns, which is which is a different kind of thing? That seems to be more likely to be a waste of money. Uh, uh, um, or does it depend on the size of the race? Or uh, it can you know, money can make a, a big difference in campaigns and. Tip O'Neill was not wrong when he said money is the mother's milk of politics. But it's usually a very small investment by the clients. You know, a, a, a company is, you know, has billions in revenue and what they're spending in their campaign donations or on lobbyists is, you know, pennies to their bottom line really and then from doing that for a long time you you tackled the the, the clarence thomas hearings happen yeah i i i was sitting in the hearing room during uh when anita hill first like swore to tell the truth in her demure blue suit i was sitting there and why were you sitting there because to be honest with you because the journal had relatively few women still in the Washington Bureau. And I think Al Hunt felt he needed to have a woman covering those hearings. From the get-go or once the Anita Hill thing? Because I'm trying to remember now. No, I didn't cover the, Clar the Clarence Thomas confirmation until I she made her allegations of sexual harassment. That moment when what we people were thinking would be a conventional confirmation process even though it was could have been quite dramatic suddenly this this whole thing erupted uh and it's kind of a forerunner of a lot uh uh 
what was that like? And I mean, and, and, and tell us what the atmosphere was in those hearings once that began to happen and what you saw about the political parties and how they responded. Well, on some level, it was absurd because you had the Senate Judiciary Committee at that time was all male and all white. And both of the figures involved in the story were black. And Rita Hill obviously was a, a black woman facing this completely clueless group of senators who barely knew what sexual harassment was. I mean, they were still in the land of, but he didn't touch you. You know, they just, they didn't understand anything about it. And so the hearings were kind of crazy and included things like a pube affidavit, yes. which was uh, some opposition research that Clarence Thomas's side and the Republicans in the Senate introduced that was the affidavit from some of Anita Hill's students at the University of Oklahoma who claimed she put pubic hair in their exams when she returned them. I mean, it was just kind of crazy. But I think those hearings had a big impact in that they did put the issue of sexual harassment out to the public. It be, be Really, I think those hearings made it an issue that most people did suddenly know about. And of course, you know, it, it was an important step in terms of Thomas was confirmed by the slimmest margin in history of the rightward turn of the Supreme Court, which we now see is so solidified. But we also, I mean, there were other things that I remember was that someone, I think it was City Paper, dug up his porn records. Oh, yeah. They're, they're... So this was also one of these moments when Pandora's box was opened in a public way about things like that. Although I, I guess, you know. No, they, I mean, I, I was sitting across, right? The pre press table was just one table of reporters. A right. long table would be, I mean, you see the mobs of reporters covering the January 6th hearings. And it was mostly men. And I was seated across from Maureen Dowd, who was covering the hearings for the New York Times and covered them brilliantly uh, and in a very unique way because yeah, I have to say that this... she had just, you know, a great woman's eye on these proceedings. But when, like, the words Long Dong Silver, <laughs> which was the title of one of the movies Clarence Thomas was describing Anita Hill in the office, that, when oh that God. Said, I mean, I didn't know Maureen at all. And our eyes, like, <laughs> locked because now we're sitting in this Rococo room in the Senate. And I mean, who, who, who'd heard the words pubic hair, long dong silver talked about? I mean, it was incredible. Yeah. I mean, I was, when I was reading Jamie Coach's book about the hearings in the 50s, which were all obsessed with that homosexuality. Right. 
they never said the word homosexual. Was, they were, mm-hmm. they, everything was done with this in a very decorous way. And the, but so I think those hearings really was a moment when decorum kind of begun to collapse. In in in, I mean, I think the Bork hearings kind of destroyed the sense of a judicious. And I mean, basically, the, 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 the although that was mainly based on his record and what he'd said, yeah, no, Whereas that's when the ideological much... stuff took mm-hmm. off, but this was also where the private stuff took off. So then you end up with a Brett Kavanaugh moment or or the other things that have happened, I and mean, that's a similar kind of a similar moment, really, when a surprise witness emerges, uh, in a hearings and it creates this emotional drama that kind of people have a real strong uh, response either way. I, with the, with the, I'll be honest with you, with Clarence Thomas Lita Hill, it would seem to me obviously Lita Hill was telling the truth. I, I generally speaking believe women when they talk about sexual harassment because it's, 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 it's not always the case. But uh, Kavanaugh, I don't know what to think because it happened so long ago and I, I, people are talking about distant past and uh and i wondered whether that was should have been brought up in that context um do you think that the way in which thomas was confirmed embittered him to be absolutely yes uh and i think he remains embittered to this day he kept a sign on his desk because many journalists especially during the first set of hearings justified him joining the court because they said he would evolve. And Thomas, once he got on the court, kept a sign on his desk which said, I ain't evolving. Which, you know, gives you a sense of his defiant and somewhat resentful Except the, the other thing I hear about him, however, is that he really is amazing to all the people around him. He's an incredibly good mentor to the younger. He knows every name in the building. He yeah, talks to the janitor. He's, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's an absolute, wonderfully kind person to everyone. And that is what you hear. And I have no reason to disbelieve it. Um, in fact, I think one of the other judges was saying, I think Sotomayor was saying this in his defense as a, as a character witness. Um, of, of how he behaves. But his jurisprudence is hideous, and that's what counts. Well, yes. <laughs> I'm, 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 I, and I, I think uh, arguing around the question it, is completely legitimate. But pubic hair is on. I had this image of a pubic hair on a Coke can. Yes, no, that's what. But then, then Arlen Specter was trying to prove that Anita Hill concocted. That, that he said, who put this pubic hair on my can of Coke? And that's why the idea that she would have, I don't know. It was all night. It was also but, a moment when. But she was, she, Anita Hill felt that she had been asked to come to Washington to testify, which was true, that she was going to just say the truth to actually report what Clarence Thomas said to her and the words he used and that she'd go home and that that would be the end of that. But of course it wasn't. It also presumably permanently affected her 
Definitely. But I, I have um, kept in touch with her. I, I participated. There was a anniversary program that I participated in where she spoke and we, we shared a meal. Uh, she, it changed her, but she has remained very much the same as far as I can tell. Yeah, you know, she, she was one of, I think it's 13 kids and youngest. Her parents had never left Oklahoma. They'd, they'd never been on an airplane before they came to Washington to support her when she testified back in 1991. And, you know, she just has these core values. Uh, she's still really close to her sisters and brothers. When every time I've seen her, they've been around. They're very close. And so, yes, it changed her, of course, because, you know, she's recognized still everywhere she goes. Uh, and that was, you know, a total change for her. Um, and she would say it changed her life both for the better and, and for the bad. What interests me in but a way... She's not embittered at all. She, yeah. Okay. I, I, I don't know. It's, that's, that's interesting. But I, you are reporting as a young woman with Maureen, a young woman, both of you trailblazing. <laughs> you are. And, and the one thing, you know, this is one thing I miss about Maureen, which is, which is that she, she used to just be the news reporter. She wasn't a right. she was a reporter. And her, her coming from England, reading newspapers in the 80s and 90s, it, a lot of it was so self-important and tedious. And, and, so, and she had life in these parts. And, and she would know humor. This. Human, and she would notice details that you, <laughs> yes. you would you would just like would help and, and and is it is it wrong to think that women are better at doing that you know writing about people noticing stuff that's really insightful about people because i think of some of the journalists i've most admired and admire now someone like i don't know whether you know about marina hyde in mm -hmm. she is First of all, she's hilarious. Secondly, just that ability to see an anecdote or a moment or a piece of body language that a men just in general, not all of them, but I, I think it's, just, but am I being stereotypical there? Because obviously you wrote hard-ass financial journalism or-, or uh, I know, you know, but I like to think I have a kind of special eye for detail that may be related to being a woman and the thing the reason I was chuckling as I remember Maureen describing uh, Senator Strom Thurmond as having tang colored hair which is like so true he had this kind of odd dyed orange hair just like was so great just one adjective would make a column uh, but you're also as young women reporters covering stories like this like anita hill in which clearly the whole question of women becoming more equal in our society is front and center when you're watching this evolve same same i was like if you go forward to lewinsky um, another story. Which Maureen, Maureen and I both covered because uh, I'd come to the Times by then, but was reporting on the Lewinsky scandal. Looking back, I mean, first of all, it seems in retrospect, 
wouldn't it be wonderful to have that be a scandal today? I know. <laughs> we, we have we have insurrections at the Capitol and and unbelievable corruption, uh, and possibly the demise of democracy. Well, yes, we will. Oh, that. That's, 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 we'll, we'll get to that a little later. Um, uh, um, what was that? You were talking about women. Oh yeah, my area of expertise. Um, not. Um, and that was a great fall. But but also, I, the Clinton Lewinsky thing. Looking back, I mean, Maureen was devastating about Bill Clinton, and there was a certain group of us that really didn't like him. Um, I was thinking, me, Kelly, Mike Kelly was another one. All these Irish kids who somehow didn't like this smooth talking and also his morals let's be honest about that too and i certainly wouldn't defend his morality uh but but i did i i liked him i've always liked him i actually met him in the late 1970s when he was making his first run for governor i met hillary then too and you know i i just i thought he was really smart and he wants people to like him so he was kind to me and i was a young nobody back then what were they like back then as a couple did you think then these two are gonna get somewhere or was it not well apparent? before I went to meet them, I was actually doing a variety of different writing jobs uh, in South Carolina of all places to support myself. And one of those jobs was writing copy for a political consulting firm, a democratic one. And uh, Bill Clinton was one of the clients of this firm. And before I went to Little Rock because I was writing his campaign brochure and cutting radio spots with him. The, the head of this firm said to me, you will see he's something special. And he had worked for lots of different political figures, including Jimmy Carter. I remember m- meeting him uh, early in the cycle, the, before the first primaries were going to take was uh because uh believe it or not sydney blumenthal said i should meet this guy <laughs> and sydney was um he was also running the campaign this is when i was editor of the new republic and i i and i went to just to a sat in the back of the room just watched uh and of course he wouldn't let me sit in the back of the room because he already knew who i was and he and, and so there was a, a all i can say is it was a seduction that it was impossible to be around him and not like him, that there was an incredible personal charm that swept you up, even though you kind of knew at the time this is all very good politics. Uh-huh. It didn't help because he just had that excessive, and I also think in retrospect, as a president, he did a pretty good job. We uh, wish we had that economy right now. And I think he... He he actually perfected the task of working with Republicans in a strange kind of way by by being co-opted partly by them, um, but he he got two terms. He he made a difference. Um, I couldn't stand him at the time for all sorts of reasons, but I think in retrospect, I was 
way too harsh on some of it. Uh, like the white water stuff is sleazy. It was penny ante. We, got, we got totally out of perspective. I mean, the journal. The <laughs> Times. Right. I mean, the journal was the editorial pages, the opinion section. Um, but the Times' as news pages were probably the most aggressive on the Whitewater story. Well, we were, kind you were of... asking me what they were like back then. Yeah. And what, you know, did I, I, you know, I, I certainly thought he had enough raw political talent that he would go somewhere. And she seemed very smart, but you've seen pictures of her, you know, did not look like someone who was going to go into politics. She had, you know, big glasses. And she seemed, when I was around them, this is 1978, often mad at him. Uh, and, you know, I I wondered back then, you know, what, what was causing her to be angry at him a lot. So... And I think now we know. <laughs> we do. But did you befriend her at all, but get to know her as a I, person? I did. And I would, I'm not going to say well. And never did either of them sort of put me. They, they did have certain journalists that, you know, they saw as very loyal to them, et cetera. And I was certainly not one of them. I wrote... Um, a front page story in the journal about the two of them and the networks of their friends, the FODs, Friends of Bills. I was the first one to write about that using that term. And it's funny because I had friends in the White House who told me he liked the story because he thought it showed that he had all kinds of interesting and important friends. She hated it and said to him, you're crazy. What she's saying is we use our friends, which right. is, of course, perfectly true. And so she, she always, she, it mattered to her. She only, I think, like journalists, she felt were basically on their team or her team, and that was never going to be me. Who were they? They were Sydney Blumenthal, who was sort of the chief Joe propagandist. Klein. Joe Klein, yeah, I guess <laughs> that's true. Um, I'm trying to remember back then who else. But I felt as editing Sydney at the time that sooner or later I had to pull him off that beat. I, I mean, in some ways, it was a great advantage. The very beginning. Well, would he you would... write for publication what he knew, or that's the problem I... with someone who's close to a political figure. Sometimes they know great things, but they don't want to write them because they don't want to anger their. I think it was even more of a fusion of identity with the Clintons. He felt he was part of the administration. Uh, and uh, it became obviously so. I, I, when, he, when we found him faxing stories in advance to Hillary for approval <laughs> in the fax room, we had to pull, pull him off the beat. But then I sticked him onto Perot, uh, where he just did his mm -hmm. character assassination. Right. Um, 
You know, they, I think they didn't quite know ever what to make of me, whether it was as a reporter or when I was managing editor of the Times uh, when she ran in 2008. And she was furious because I assigned a story right in the year before he, she was running just about their marriage, which I knew was going to come up. And, you know, of all people, Joe Lillybeld, who had been the executive editor of the Times and was certainly not someone who was prone to liking highly personal political stories, but he, he said to me he had... Um, he, he had retired as executive editor. I went out to lunch with him and he said, you should do a story on the marriage because if you don't do it, someone else will and then you'll be chasing. Right. So do, you know, a credible, well-reported piece on their marriage, which he didn't know much about. And so I assigned Pat Healy, who's a great reporter, is now on the opinion side, to do it and you know it, it didn't his story didn't it's not like it reported on any of his affairs but he got hold of their schedules and when you compared them they were like together not that much uh, day by day and she sort of she I don't think ever forgave me for that and then got the idea that I had stacked the times against her, which was totally untrue. And anybody who knows me knows, like, I, I wanted her to be president. In my private self, supported her in 2008 over Obama. I mean, Maureen Dowd, I can remember we were both in New Hampshire, and Maureen said to me, look, you have to get over her. You know, she's not going to get the nomination. Obama is. So, so it, it just was false that I wanted to turn the right. against her, but I saw their marriage as in a completely legitimate area to, to it do just, the It destroyed his that. presidency. But, you know, that it just, she was better to me always if I was approaching her because of her own job or expertise. Like when she was Secretary of State, it was fine. When she was First Lady and I was at the Journal, not fine. That's the paradox of her, of course, that she wants to be absolutely her own person, but was constantly made that decision to be with this other person right. who was actually better than her at critical aspects of what she wanted to do. And then we had this delusional, well, maybe I'm being harsh, but, but this attempt to win the presidency all those years later. She did win! <laughs> <laughs> no, she did. We're, we're, we're well, sticklers here. she won the here. popular vote. Well, um, well you, you know, we can't, you can't attack the Trumpies for saying he didn't he didn't he didn't win Biden didn't win if we if you say that about her. Um but uh uh the other thing we saw from the Nita Hill through Clinton's the emergence of a right wing press that really uh really took off. Uh, and 
fascinated me. Right. Was it David Brock's piece on Anita Hill? Remember, How about been... David Brock's piece on Jane Mayer and Jill Abramson? Oh, tell me about that. Well, that was also in his American Spectator days right. when he was on the right. And, you know, when after Strange Justice was published, he did, I think it was after. It might that was, before, we should but, tell the listeners oh, what that was. That was a book that I wrote with Jane Mayer, who had also been at the Wall Street Journal, about getting really to the bottom and investigating the whole Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas story. And we unearthed a lot of new information showing that Anita Hill had told the truth. And this was very threatening to you know, Clarence Thomas's supporters and to the right. And David Brock was, who had gone after Hillary Clinton, who, you know, bestowed upon the American public Paula Jones. He he then came after, uh, came after us. And the, I'll never forget the cover of the American Spectator, which was a very conservative publication back in the 90s, at, we, Jane and I were two mean little like terrier dogs or chihuahuas, and we had Clarence Thomas's robes in our feet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, and, and this rarely happens in life, but after David Brock, for whatever reasons, went from right wing to being pro Hillary and becoming more a, a figure of the, the the left. He wrote a, a book in which he admitted that that the whole attack on Jane Mayer and Jill Abramson that he had written was concocted and and wrong. And that was just so pleasurable. <laughs> I mean that never happened. Never happens. Right? You don't have people saying, I yes, I got that wrong. I apologize to you now. Everything I said yes, was false. <laughs> Uh, he, of course, um, now became more Clinton than the Clintons. I mean, he, right. he, it's as if. And became good friends with the self same Sidney Blumenthal, who you yes. we were just talking about. One of my, uh, <laughs> one of my living nightmares was here once. God, he'll hear this. But um, I was with my mother and I took her to dinner. And who would be sitting next to us? David then Brock. David Brock and his, his, his then boyfriend, mm -hmm. uh, who I also know. And I get up to go to the loo and I come back and my mother is talking about my childhood to David Brock. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm finished. Um, but yeah, he was the one that came up with a little bit nutty and a little bit slutty. Slutty, absolutely. What about Anita Hill that was? Um, and you, you've watched the right-wing press since. You've watched I've watched it from its very, very beginnings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a mighty edifice it is now, having grown. I mean, when I mentioned the American Spectator, that was one of its premier outlets. And it was, you know, this, you know, magazine funded by Richard Scaife Mellon, who no one talks about anymore. Right. Uh, but you but know, he, he, you followed his money, too, presumably. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I mean. I, I thought that the, 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 back to Monica Lewinsky for a minute, I thought that whole thing, it, it was certainly a legitimate story, but it was not 
the legitimate basis for presidential impeachment is what I thought. And I could see abuse in the office of the independent counsel, Ken Starr. And that's what I invest. I investigated his office and exposed a lot of interesting things, including a certain lawyer named George Conway. Really? Who at that point was, you know, in a cabal to help get Linda Tripp, Monica's, you know, evil, uh, wicked, betraying friend to walking her in to Ken Starr's office. George Conway was working on it behind the scenes. He was, George Conway was one of a group that were called the Elves. And I've really John Benetta in the Times exposed the existence of this secret group of very smart lawyers called the Elves that were plotting against Bill Clinton. So then you rise up the ranks of the New York Times and you become the executive editor. Crazy. I did. Well, yeah. tell, tell me about when that happened to you. I mean, do you remember when you were asked? When you were asked? Oh, vividly. Tell me about um, it. Well, just I had been managing editor of the news side of the Times for eight years, and that's the number two. And it's not unusual for that person to rise up and be executive editor. Uh, so you know, I had kind of run the news report or certainly helped Bill Keller command the news side of the paper for eight, for eight years. And so I certainly knew I was a top contender for the job. I didn't know I would get it in some ways. I didn't think I'd get it because I didn't, I hadn't really cultivated a relationship with the publisher who was then Arthur Salzberger Jr. Pinch. So, yeah. Pinch. Pinch. Right. His father was Punch. Punch. He hated being called Pinch. But I vividly remember I was like getting ready uh, to uh, go, go to a, a morning appointment and my phone rang and it was Arthur Salzberger Jr. calling he had, he was abroad and just on the phone he said to me i'd like to ask you to be our next executive editor and you know i was pretty surprised uh, and you know i i said something like you know something so pretentious like it would be the honor of my life also <laughs> true though but it it, it 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 was true in some way sure well anybody uh, be the executive editor be the first being, female editor executive you know editor. being the the first woman was a a big deal i've been the first woman to be washington bureau chief which is an important job right. at the times so as the first woman managing editor and then the first woman to be executive editor, and I'm still very proud. You of should that. be. When you look back at that period of editing that vast institution, it appeared actually of extraordinary uh, challenge for a media business. It was oh, in the transition. It was the worst. It was, the it was very choppy waters everywhere. Um, what What do you take away from that experience editing the paper in that period? 
Well, that it would have been better to be executive editor when there weren't predictions that the Times would go bankrupt. Right. right. I mean, seriously, no. because the years that the two and a half year size executive editor coincided with like the worst of it, you know, it got bad during my last years as managing editor, but, you know, terrible. And, you know, the belief of the new CEO was a Brit, as you know, Mark Thompson, who came from the BBC. He thought that, you know, the best money-making ideas would come from the newsroom. And I had been schooled and believed fervently in a separation between the business and news side. And so quickly I came into conflict with my betters, which was not wise. And I think looking back, you know, you, you have to be somewhat humble. And I think I made a bigger deal out of some of those conflicts than I needed to. Mm. I remember the the difficulties in that period. I mean, uh, the, the sponsored content became this. Well, that's I was bitterly against that. I was too, and it, it, because this wasn't a minor concession. This was an ultimate betrayal, even to me, of the. And they made it look as if the sponsor content was as close to the normal content as could. The, the, it was advertising disguised as editorial. news, and th that is. That's a mortal sin. I mean, we I were trained so, as journalists and editors that that would never happen. I remember going to... Uh, I still hate it. I, I despise it. Because it's not the, happening the, anymore. The, so not, well, yeah, you see sponsored content in little letters in the corner still. And, and the Times has a whole, essentially, advertising agency within, you know, the building, which I, I mean... In exactly. some ways, we haven't said I was fired as executive editor, and I could never have done what they went on to do. Is and again, maybe I made too much of it because there's been really no scandal associated, at least at the times, with sponsored content. But I protested just... at the Atlantic when it was happening, and that's also one of the reasons I left the Atlantic because, again, there were things being done that were obviously entirely designed by and for advertisers. And I understand the need to pay the rent, but I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Um, I remember we have this view from your window contest, which is huge, popular with the readers and with lots of other people. And we, every day we have a little simple view from your window. And, uh, uh, and they, they said, well, could you call it like the Holiday Inn view from your window? <laughs> and they well, occasionally have a Hollywood Inn view from your window. And I was like, are you out of your minds? It would immediately destroy the entire integrity of this feature. And it's, authenticity this is about real human beings and you're at, and I, I was like oh this was actually at the daily beast when uh but you know what someone. now no one would blink that's it they really wouldn't uh there's all kinds of it in fact it's quality news that is sponsored by interested parties certainly i mean 
We were talking about this earlier today that in some ways, the pressures that we would feel as journalists would almost always be from advertisers, that that's who we had to watch out for, that we would offend them. And you, you, I mean, goodness knows how many meetings you had to have around that subject. Now, because it's shifted so much to subscribers. Reader revenue. Yeah, reader revenue. Uh, that is a different kind of pressure. Um, uh, and I think more powerful. If, especially has, has actually led to the consolidation of opinion so that a newspaper doesn't offend its own readership, which can then stew in its own juices until it just gets crazy, which is part of what's functioning as part of what's fueling polarization, I think. Um, I mean, it's better than not existing, right? But how do editors stand up to subscribers? Well, you know, the audience rules now in almost every sphere of media, and the audience leads. And, you know, you start publishing a lot of content that runs counter to the stuff they like at your peril. Um, I mean, that's the whole engine of Facebook is to feed you stuff you like from the uh, and to not you countervailing information that you're not going to like. But my feeling about that is it does two things. One, it, it actually dramatically reduces diversity of opinion within a newspaper and that it, that can subtly uh, influence what writers, reporters, editors want to cover. Um, but we've had something else come into this, which is a sense that the mission of a newspaper is social justice. And so this was a fascinating moment, summer of 2020, the uh, riots uh, after the murder of George Floyd in New York, rioting, looting, arson, and it comes a point at which James Bennett, the executive editor, runs, a, runs an op-ed by Tom Cotton, uh, arguing that all else fails, we should stand in the feds. Uh, you could disagree strongly or agree strongly or anywhere in between. Um, and he loses his job. Well, as you know, even using the word riot was very controversial at that point because it was a genuine it was an uprising for social justice for social justice uh uh but that was a political uh motivation um i think that all intensified greatly during the trump years yeah. too not only because of george floyd and black lives matters uh and you know, journalism for social justice was not new. Uh, the muckrakers were in it, you know, in the early 1900s for social justice too. And in fact, would meet those journalists who were known as the muckrakers with Teddy Roosevelt in the White House to plan what they were going to investigate that would dovetail with his reformist agenda. So, 
No, it's not new. Uh, brought us, you know, the first labor, the first laws uh, abolishing child labor and things like that. Yeah, but were they firing other writers on the same paper for not being doctrinaire enough about it? Yeah, <laughs> that's that's but that's I'm not a little twist. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I think back then, you know, they're they're were magazines, you know, of just, you know, everyone was of the same mind. So there wasn't anyone to, to fire who was not imbued in the mission. Right. Well, those missions change. tend to be rather strategic and tend to be economic change, you know, yes, reforms true. of various legal things as opposed to changing social attitudes or, or policing other people's. No, I do not envy anybody who has the kind of position at a major publication than I did. I, I just can't imagine having to manage through, you know, the various controversies that seem to erupt with such regularity. I mean, lately, we've been focused on the Washington Post and uh, the firing of a reporter there for not limiting her, her tweets were attacks on some of her colleagues. And when management told her to stop, she didn't. And she was fired, but not before another reporter who we both admire, Dave Weigel, was put suspended without pay for months. Uh, the idea, if you talk to a journalist of like old Fleet Street and someone was suspended for making a, a bad joke, the whole point of the newsroom was bad jokes. It was, it was the place where you could say anything, where the truth was told. So there were all sorts of possible stories. It was the frankest, bluntest place. Now it is silent. That's the other thing. It is silent. You walk into these places and because everyone... They feel like insurance adjusters' offices. But... They do. And, and, and the means of communication through this thing called Slack becomes basically Twitter times 12 within the actual institution. And these institutions can't function if it is constantly convulsed with these internal and they're very bitter but you know what we're talking about newsrooms now mm -hmm. but this is true within almost every major social group on the left right now whether it's the sierra club or the aclu i mean there is internal dis you know, dis dissent and fighting everywhere. And um, the Intercept, which sometimes has a lot of interesting articles, I think, had a, a very good kind of broad uh, look at that. And I think that it really does create a kind of, lack of there isn't a mission anymore there's just internal squabbling and it limits the effectiveness of both the democratic party and these groups i think they're almost paralyzed by internal dissent and also 
because the internal dissent can be so emotive and essentially emotional blackmail, if you want to be crude about it, um, uh, you can't tackle it without being accused of being a racist or right. a misogynist or a, a transphobe and all the rest of it. But that inevitably means that stories henceforth are always going to be within that safe, narrow land. Yeah. They can't actually listen to what regular human beings are talking about and saying. So if, 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 if Biden keeps using the term Latinx, you know, immediately every single Hispanic voter tunes out because uh, it's what the hell is it? Uh, but if he were not to say that, the, you would face the opprobrium of another set of people entirely. His own administration, who would then use social media to put pressure on him, and do there's no sense of institutional loyalty because social justice comes first. And this, well, that's the essence of these Slack channels you were talking about too. Is there's no loyalty to the institution? Why? Why do you think? I mean, that's a very big question. Why? It's I, I've noticed it with the younger generation in particular. When I walked into the New Republic or I went to these, I immediately felt awe at the past, the, the honor of it, the reputation of it. I knew Walter I didn't know Walter Lee, Yeah, absolutely. Right there. Um, I'm lucky to be there. I don't know really anything. And so I, I, do my bit and I try and learn the way all of us do. Occasionally you gossip and whatever, but it's not. And you would never, if you were going to have a debate when I was running the Republic, you would run it openly in the pages. <laughs> Leon Wieseltier and Charles Krauthammer going at each other week after week, which is fun, but it's not calling each other anti-Semites on Twitter. Right. <laughs> and uh, Somehow they just have this extraordinary sense of entitlement. I've never seen it like that before they walk in and say we we're actually going to tell you guys what you're doing wrong i, I was told this story about one of the first meetings that the the new arthur salzburger uh owner of the time ag ag okay we have to keep the um he had a he had an opening again a town hall meeting which <laughs> You know, never hold a town hall meeting. Uh, Correct. Uh, just don't. Um, the first question to him, I was told by someone who was there, was, what have you done to fight white supremacy today in your life? Right. And is that? That's an opening job. question. That's the first thing. Uh -huh. That is the most important thing for him to do every day. And well, uh, can we, let's put ourselves in his shoes at that moment. I mean, if that was, I had to do town hall meetings, internal ones at the time, so just on a regular basis, not because there was unhappiness. But I can't imagine if someone asked me that question, I would be so off balance for the rest. I'd be so kind of hurt that the connotation is that obviously I don't do enough in my life and why, because I must, you know, be, be racist. And it's, I don't think I can think straight for the rest of the meeting. I really don't envy anybody trying to run 
organizations now. Wow. And it's not, it's also corporations. It's also oh, sure. Google. It's also uh, Tesla. It's also how do we, or, or Netflix, where the actual employees are the ones who will go to the editor and say, this has to be never broadcast or we have to punish this person or fire that person. Um, the other twist is that the actual unions uh, are often uh, on the side of purging people who are not the right race, sex, or political opinion. If you are an outsider in these places and you want to defend your right to say in your, in your, what you want to say, the unions will not have your back. Although my experience, at least firsthand with the Newspaper Guild, which was the union at the Times, I felt that they they went to bat for the right people. Uh, well, that's your that's your experience. And you know, I was management, so I should be saying the opposite. But I, I thought that they stood up for people, you know, who on the job really were either fired for ridiculous reasons or whatever. But I like unions. I'm glad that, you know, that Times had a story a day or so ago about a woman who'd been a Rhodes Scholar who is now a barista at Starbucks, I think, in Cleveland, because she was hoping to, to unionize uh, the workers there. I think there are so few institutions left in this country that, you know, bring people together in shared purpose. And labor unions were one of them. And, you know, you do a lot of writing about the church. I mean, church is, is another institution. Well, these, these are that, the... But it's been, you know, in many ways delegitimized by scandal and, and whatnot. And what do we do? I mean, people like Robert Putnam, the professors, studied this. Uh, the collapse of religion. It, it seemed as if America was immune, and then the 21st century happened, and suddenly, wham, secularization is in full swing. Um, without trade unions, without church organizations, without BFWs, without little leagues, without all the things that would bind people I together. was the Girl Scout troop leader. <laughs> And yeah, these, it's important. Yeah, and and yet we are, and I, COVID made everything oh. much, much worse. And it's very hard. You know, the other thing you realize, it's kind of hard to pick up again habits that are just sort of ingrained that you've lost for two years. You know, those muscles are, are atrophied. atrophied. Just going to church every week, which I used to do. And once COVID hit, you couldn't go at all. And then you have to kind of, get yourself back into the mode and inevitably there's attrition that they're not they're not as many people i think up. what COVID also did is make people very self-oriented uh, and self-righteous and lacking in as much interest in things outside of their own immediate lives because everyone was locked in their immediate life. Don't uh, you think people went a bit nuts in, in, in all in all ways during that period? Some of the, the trends were happening before COVID and then they just intensified greatly. Yeah. 
One of the wonderful things about you, Jill, is today we've been together. We got together for breakfast now. It's a little after early. I know. You must be sick of me. No, no, no. It's, <laughs> it's wonderful. But you've not looked at your phone barely once or twice. And you are not on social media. Not at all. Zero. Uh, so you are you are a hero of the Dish Cast because we're constantly talking about not doing this stuff, stuff, even as we do them all the time. Uh, what do you read and how do you read them? How do you keep on top of what's going on in the world? Or, or are you doing less of that these days for your own sanity? I would say in general, I'm doing less of it for my own sanity, although I'm glued to the January 6th hearings. I mean, to the point where I spent hours every day doing my own research and reporting on the internet about a lot of the people that we've been hearing about that I'd never heard anything about before. Who in particular? Like lawyers. I think today one of the people they're talking about is hilariously a Wisconsin-born lawyer named Cheesebro. <laughs> um, but fine, you know, these, these people are, I mean, Hillary Clinton was uh pilloried for using the term a vast right-wing conspiracy but one actually does exist now and we're getting bits and pieces of it that i did, even i didn't know and i've been obsessed with the right for as long as i've been reading stuff have you been surprised about what we've learned about Jeannie thomas no, not entirely, because uh, I I was well aware that she was affiliated with a lot of groups that were on the extreme right, and you know Jane Mayer is one of my closest friends, and we talk all the time, and she wrote what I consider to be the first and best piece in the New Yorker that focused on Virginia Ginny Thomas and showed that, you know, her political life clearly veered into areas where Justice Thomas was being asked to rule on issues that she was deeply involved in. And, you know, the Supreme Court justices get to decide when to recuse and not to recuse. There aren't clear rules, but it seemed to be just a rule of common sense that this was a conflict. I thought Jane showed that just through her reporting so well. So no, I'm, I'm not surprised, but I think it's disturbing. And, you know, I think I wonder, she said she's so eager to testify. I am a little skeptical that she'll end up testifying because I think there are things where she might face legal danger. And she, John Eastman, this lawyer who was, you know, basically concocting all of these lawsuits with fake allegations about voter fraud. Uh, you know, he was a, a Clarence Thomas clerk and is close with, with her, too. So she, you know, she and someone she worked very closely with, a lawyer named Cleta Mitchell in Washington, helped connect Trump to Johnny's And, you know, 
I'm not sure this looks very. When you go back and you you started your goals in journalism by watching the Watergate hearings, and you 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 covered the the Clarence Thomas hearings. You, your hearings are your thing. How does this current set of hearings? Compare? It relates directly because the current set of hearings is about abuse of presidential power. And that's what Watergate was all about. Uh, there's you know new history of Watergate that was just published by Garrett Grafe. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. That's very good and shows kind of as we're seeing with Trump, that there were all these various different scandals, all of them sort of serious in their own right, that sort of grew together as what we know as Watergate now. And I think that, that these hearings are bringing out, you know, various important undemocratic, abusive things that Donald Trump was doing both during his term and certainly during the period after the election to Joe Biden's inauguration. Shocking things. And I'm very worried that we're going to see worse. Uh, I mean, we had the first basically non-peaceful transfer of power in our nation's history. And just based on what I know and how things tend to go, I would think there's a good likelihood that we'll see worse in 2024. And things like, you know, what happened in Texas just over the weekend, where the Republican Party in a platform says Joe Biden is the illegitimate president. Uh, you know, that that worries me. I, I tend to be an optimist, even after all these years of investigative reporting, I'm an optimist and kind of a sunny person by nature. But uh, I'm, I'm worried about our country. My feeling about it is that, yes, the right keeps radicalizing. I think for the same reason that the left has been radicalizing. I know we're not supposed to compare it, but there is a process of, of of silos that they're talking to each other and in which a certain dynamic means they have to appeal to the most extreme to get traction. Mm -hmm. um, and so this thing happens going further and further forward. And, but Biden gets in and yes, he is basically a creature of, of much of his left on, on many of these policies, but only Trump is prepared to violate any. Right. They're not equivalent. No, there's no, it's, it's just not, it's he he does not understand our system he does not believe in our system and he is prepared to break the system uh and that makes him unique in american history in he is i think the very tyrant that the founders warn us about yeah. and why they put things like the first amendment and freedom of the press in the Constitution, because they were deathly afraid of abusive, overweening, centralized executive power, because they were rebelling against exactly. the king. 
it's not, it's hard. not rocket science. No, um, but it's nonetheless, if I were had a gun to my head and said, who's going to win the next election? Right. I would think that Donald Trump has more than a 50% chance. Uh, why? Because I can't see who is going to run against him. And I think if Biden did, he would lose. Uh, well, I, at least Biden, I, I, I just, I, ca I can't see him running again. He's just too old. I'm, it's awful to say it. And he hasn't been that effective. So, so what are we going to do? Uh, who among the Democrats could defeat Trump or who among the Republicans could defeat him? And so I'm in this position. You tell me how you feel. Uh, if I have to, I'll support DeSantis over Trump. I don't, you know, if the Democrats would come up with the same candidate that I could support, then I would think otherwise. But I can't see any. So if Trump is this worrying, if a peaceful transfer of power next time is, I think it, I don't, I may not be an issue because he may win so big, it doesn't matter. It's only these close calls. And I, it's, I bet you this midterm will not be that hard on this question because the Republicans are going to win pretty decisively anyway. Um, if that's the main problem, though, keeping Trump, we're going to have to support anybody within his party. Anybody. I, I agree with you. I mean, you've and, seen the denunciations of Liz Cheney and uh, others. As, you know, we can't forgive these people. They, they're warmongers, neocons. Pence. Pence is a bloody hero to me. I mean, I can't. I have to have never had a huge issue with Pence. I actually, even though he is theologically hostile deeply to homosexuals having marriages, He's never said anything that has been sort of slurry, demeaning, uh, nasty. And I think people have been unfair to him, it, 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 especially among gays, actually. I'm not saying his policies are defensible. I am saying he's, insofar as he represents that position, he is not Steve ba Stephen Bannon. He is not Chris Rufo. He is not someone who is capable of calling teachers groomers or uh, calling drag queens transfers. He's just not that kind of person. He's a decent person, he seems. But what he went through that day, I mean, what is going through his head? Well, clearly that one photograph of his wife drawing the curtains to block the window so that the rioters won't know where he is it's just it really drives home how scared they must have been and you know i've talked to democratic members of congress who were scared out of their wits that day and you know it's very easy to criticize but the thing about pence is that at a very dark and scary hour, he stood up and did the right thing. And that is not so easy. And I think, I just wonder, you know, I, I abhor his politics on all different things. But right now it just seems there's a baseline issue and that's defending our democracy. And he did that. And I'm grateful to him for it. And look at Liz Cheney. First of all, she it you think she was a career prosecutor. She is so good in these hearings. And 
she's risking her political career on this. So she's running way behind for re-election in Wyoming, which is a very, you know, arch-conservative state. So she's putting her political career on the line to defend democracy because she is so disturbed by Donald Trump and what he tried to do. You and, would think that these... So, yeah, hooray for her. Right. Uh, it, it, that is more important than the fact that I disagree with her on abortion. I disagree with her about the war in Iraq uh, and Miriam on guns. She's, you know... Torture. For, right. But, but she is laying everything down for democracy, and I admire her for that. Do you think that looking back, the the mainstream media, I'm thinking also of the Times here, in the way they responded to Trump so dramatically, in some ways justifiably, but in other ways, in a way that actually made it so polarized for a lot of people on the other side that they stopped listening and reading and and really this whole thing becomes just a mutual, like a bad marriage in, in which people are doing things to each other out of spite, almost. There's, and yeah, how do we regain that trust? How do we regain, or, or is trying to regain it humiliating? Should we just ignore it? Uh, uh, it's not humiliating, but it requires a different kind of editing and a desire to really take partisanship out of covering the news. And that's very difficult now because that the audience wants a left-leaning, if they're liberals, news product. And But I think of, here's a piece I read, Emily Bazelon, we're both big mm -hmm. fans of hers. She wrote this piece about the most contentious issue around trans children treatments. If, you, if you're good enough and you really want to be fair, you can do it in the New York Times. And, uh, but of course, huge blowback from the left on Twitter. I can't believe, you know, all this stuff where you're, you're actually participating in the genocide of trans, all this stuff. That's uh, why I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> but, you know, the trouble is if you're a writer, and you're, even if you're a writer not on Twitter, your editor is and worried about this stuff. Um, and worried, as you said earlier, about the internal blowback, black, back, sorry, blowback from one's colleagues. My view is that no reporter working at the Times or the Post or any of the major newspapers, the Journal, should be allowed to have Twitter accounts or use them except for promoting their own pieces. But you had your rule. No, remind me your rule. My my rule is was that anything any of that our journalists are always associated with the New York Times. So what you express on any platform, whether it's cable TV or Twitter, should be the same as what you would publish in the Times news report, and should not be more opinionated or snarky or whatever than what would be published them all. And 
I think that was a, a pretty good rule. So when did that end? I don't I can't pinpoint. That. When did editor lose their balls? When when did editors stop going and news and say, "You're fired. You're fired." You. I mean, well, that was Abe Rosenthal. You know, it, who I don't know if any of your listeners even know who he oh, was. Oh, I remember A.M. Rosenthal. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, Friend he, of the gays, I recall. Said, <laughs> and it actually is on his tombstone that what he wanted was to say he kept the paper straight. And he did. He was also a terrible homophobe. He was literally and, straight in his, in his, in his, yes. And, you know, he did fire people and no one questioned that, you know, he had guts and the courage of his own convictions, even if they were wrong. I really do think it is there to blame ultimately editors, owners, people who let this happen because they don't have the balls to say, I don't care. This is my newspaper. Work somewhere else. I'm em empathetic, though, maybe because I had to sit in that seat that, you know, it, it's tough. You want to, above all, be able to hire, you know, the best news gatherers in the, the business. And if you're, you know, the only place saying no social media at all, you know, maybe you're not going to be able to do that. I mean, it's really hard. I'm, I'm not quick to judge. And I've said a couple of times in our conversation that I don't envy anyone in those jobs right now. I really don't. I've, I know what it feels like when the times, you know, is embroiled in an internal controversy and it becomes very I was I was saying to you earlier it becomes performative almost that especially at quote unquote town meetings I mean everyone wants to be the one who steps up and says most courageous or outlandish or is or can represent the it most becomes just almost impossible to manage truly even a good editor with guts and the right values, it is hard. Yeah. Especially, but it seems to me the, the one argument they have that wins all the time, the, the, the insurrectionists, as it were, is if you discipline me, you're disciplining a marginalized person, uh, you're, you're, you're enacting white supremacy, or you're reenacting the patriarchy. And everyone in their generation will call it all out. And then that's when they fall. And it seems to me once they've seen, you know, once, once they see you're scared of them, it's kind of, I see. I, I guess, but I, I, I think the unfortunate truth is that what was always the watchword at the times when I was there, I think it still is, is that your duty is to the reader. You have to be honest and transparent with your readers, with your audience, and show them with evidence that you've collected through the best possible modes of news gathering what the truth is. And unfortunately, it's the audience and the reader that has become so polarized. Mm. And so... What what's the definition of your duty is to the reader and the audience when what the audience believes and wants to hear is 
a certain view of things. I will be angry if they don't get it. And stop buying you or subscribing. And that you don't want because for whatever faults it has, I still think the Times is the best and most authoritative source of news that I know of. That, and I get two home delivery subscriptions if I could afford them. <laughs> that's 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 why I get mad at it. Right, sure. Um, it's important. It's important. And, you know, I think also the British thing where you have these completely openly partisan papers that, that, that make their own case and only them. But at the same time in Britain, they have the BBC and the BBC is designed to be the, 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 the paper of, or the broadcast of record. So that really does give a neutral possible. Really? Fair. Like in, on Brexit, were they neutral? I don't know. I have, they were supposed to, in fact, there were arguments about because they had to be neutral. They they aired lots of what people regarded as misleading claims from the okay. Brexit people. But there's no question if you talk to anyone who voted for Brexit, their view is that the BBC is bloody biased, Remainer, uh -huh. liberal, elite stuff. And so again, maybe as much the readers as it is the... There's students, a problem, uh, I think. And what you get is... If you're in the middle, just but instead of both sides having some in a, in a healthy culture, being in the middle means both sides like something about you. In an unhealthy culture, they both hate all that about you. And I guess that in some ways you've got to have an inner bearing of just, am I telling the truth as best I can? That's my core. I mean, in a sense, it's keep the paper straight. Right, 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 the right. definition of that is keep it factual. Right. Love. Make sure you haven't missed a counter argument or an important piece of context that without which this is not really fully as true as it could be. Because it's never it's, that that's it's not the, just the facts. Yes. I agree with you. Well, Andrew, as worried as I am <laughs> about the country, I'm not worried about you. You have a wonderful place here where we're recording and you look marvelous oh, thank you and everything you write is provocative and interesting and intellectually sharp and um you know a dish at it <laughs> so it's a great honor that you've asked me to do that chill it's the honor is all mine and the pleasure uh uh Thank you so much, and thanks for listening. We have some pretty amazing guests lined up, um, so stay tuned to the Dishcast. Also, because we give this to you without any ads, and we also give it away free to anybody who wants to listen to all of it, it'd be really great if you like the thing, if you were to subscribe. It's just five bucks a month. It keeps ads away. It keeps us going. It sustains us with all the infrastructure we need, and uh, we'd be really grateful. We'll see you next week. Have a lovely weekend. <laughs>